Hey guys, as you know, the official beard company of the American History Podcast is Fable Beard Company. And right now, they've got some great new products for your beard with some amazing limited time seasonal scents. What says summertime more than lemonade and gum powder? You heard that right. Their newest scent is called The Refresher, and it has a scent profile that is, wait for it, gunpowder and lemonade. Seriously, I've tried it, and it's now my go-to beard oil product. I love this one. They have it in beard oil, butter, and of course, their fantastic all-in-one beard wash and conditioner. Now, of course, July is the month of independence, and we have the Patriot. This one features a blend of southern pecan pie, fresh berries, creamy vanilla, and light musk. As they say, this one smells like sunshine and freedom. Now, for the ladies in the audience, they've got products for you as well. The Enchantress is just the thing for you. It comes in hair oil and body lotion, just to name two. The scent profile features a blend of creamed peach, sparkling pear, lavender, and orange flowers. My wife loves this one, and I'm sure you will too. Now, head over to fablebeardcompany.co and use coupon code SEAN15 for 15% off the entire order. That's right, 15% off the entire order for listeners of this show. Remember, that's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, and the number 15. Now let's get back to the show. The American History Podcast, Season 4, Episode 2, Meiji, Japan. This is Tokyo Road. Are you listening? All you fine boys in your comfortable foxhole, listen to Welcome, friends, Patreons, and new friends to Episode 2 of World War II in the Pacific. I'm always excited by the prospect of a new season, and this one, well, I'm super excited about it. Now, before we get started, let me remind you to head over to the website and sign up for the email updates. I promise I won't spam you. It's www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You can also check out the resource page and see the various sources that I've used or am using to create this season. Speaking of which, if you want to purchase one of those items from Amazon, or just want to purchase anything from Amazon, really, click on the source and it'll take you directly to Amazon. You'll get the stuff and we get a little extra cash from Jeff Bezos. It's a great way to support the show and it costs you absolutely nothing. Now, speaking of support, there are two ways you can do so. We have the Patreon page, which costs as little as $5 a month and gets you access to the episodes a week ahead of time and commercial free. You also get bonus episodes from time to time. As of right now, there's over 10 hours of history goodness that's available only on Patreon, so check it out. The link is patreon.com slash American History. A second way, if you're not into Patreon, is to buy me a coffee. Now, if you go to buymeacoffee.com slash Sean Warswick, you can support us on that site. We offer a membership here for $5 a month. Now, of the writing of this episode, which is early summer 2021, they don't have a function to allow me to post episodes on there. But once they do, I'll offer the same things there that I offer on Patreon. So this is just another way to support the show 
for those who dislike Patreon and its censorship. Now, lastly, I want to offer a disclaimer or a warning before the episode begins. There will be a point in this episode where I will be quoting directly from Japanese sources at the turn of the 20th century that offers language I myself would not use. However, I think it's important to use the quotes to show the attitude of the average Japanese citizen towards other peoples in the world. All right, so enough of that. Let's get, or let's transport ourselves, I should say, back in time to the mid-19th century. Our place is Japan. But first, to get us in the mood this week, we have our song of the week, and it is Goodnight Angeline by the Four Harmony Kings. I'll see you on the other side. So the time is the mid-19th century. The place, Japan, under the Tokugawa shogunate. What was life like? Pretty much just as it had been for the last few centuries, at least for the average person. As for the government, the shogun, well, actually, you're probably wondering what is a shogun or what was it? Uh, The shogun was the military dictator of Japan who ruled the island from the 12th until the mid-19th century. However, change was in the air. Firstly, the shogunate was feeble and defenseless against external threats. Part of the problem was that the government was chronically short of funds thanks to limited income from taxes and high payments made to feudal lords, in essence, to purchase their loyalty. This led to calls for change. Secondly, and when I said change was all around, it really was. In 1853, American Commodore Matthew Perry arrived in Japan. Now, I want to spend a moment or three with this, as I think it's quite important. By the mid-19th century, there was a growing amount of commerce taking place between the United States and China. Add to this the fact that the Americans were worried about the domination of the region by European colonial powers, as well as the presence of American whalers in Japanese waters, and all of this led to President Millard Fillmore dispatching a naval expedition to Japan. Led by Commodore Matthew Perry, the objective was to end Japan's two-century policy of isolation, open the country up to trade, and use force, if needed, to accomplish the goal. Now, of course, this was not the first mission to try and open up Japan. In 1844, the Dutch monarch sent a letter urging the Japanese to open up voluntarily before the outside world forced it to do so. Perry was under no illusions of the chances of a success. As a matter of fact, he stated his desire was to be given command of the U.S. Navy's Mediterranean squadron, but he was disappointed and instead sent to Asia. Now, just a brief aside, Perry arrived in 1853 with a fleet of four vessels. Ninety-three years later, another American naval fleet would arrive, except this one was a um, 
much larger armada, armed to the teeth and flushed with the victory of war. Usually the narrative is fairly short and makes it seem like Perry simply arrived and the Japanese bowed to his wishes. Of course, that's far from the case. When Perry arrived, the Japanese government was unable to respond due to the fact that the shogun, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name, but it's Tokugawa um, Iyoshi, there we go, was ill, so I lied. I did try to pronounce it. Perry was allowed to land just outside of Yokosuka and did so with a great amount of pomp and circumstance. He was allowed to present his letter and then left, saying he would be back the next year to receive their reply. At this point, a debate engulfed the shogun government as to how to respond to American threats. The shogun died just a few days after Perry left and, sadly for Japan, was succeeded by his young son, who was sickly. The Council of Elders, led by Abe Masahiro, was also unsure of how to proceed, and they procrastinated. Um, Abe decided to pull the daimyo. A mistake was, um, as this was the first time the shogunate had allowed decision-making to be a matter of public debate, and it made the government look weak. Now, eventually, the Tokugawa shogunate decided to accept virtually all of the demands in President Fillmore's letter. Perry landed in Japan on March 8, accompanied by 500 sailors and marines, as well as gifts such as clocks, stoves, and even a telegraph machine. The Convention of Kanagawa, which legally opened the ports of Shimoda and Hakodate to Americans, and also established a consulate in Shimoda, was signed on March 31, 1854. It led to further opening, the establishment of foreign concessions, and established extraterritoriality for foreigners. This meant foreigners in Japan would be treated as we treat diplomats today. Needless to say, Japan chafed under the terms of the agreement, and this led to the downfall of the shogun and what is called the Meiji Restoration. Hey guys, as you know, the official beard company of the American History Podcast is Fable Beard Company, and right now they've got some great new products for your beard with some amazing limited-time seasonal scents. What says summertime more than lemonade and gunpowder? You heard that right. Their newest scent is called The Refresher, and it has a scent profile that is, wait for it, gunpowder and lemonade. Seriously, I've tried it, and it's now my go-to beard oil product. I love this one. They have it in beard oil, butter, and of course, their fantastic all-in-one beard wash and conditioner. Now, of course, July is the month of independence, and we have The Patriot. This one features a blend of southern pecan pie, fresh berries, creamy vanilla, and light musk. As they say, this one smells like sunshine and freedom. Now, for the ladies in the audience, they've got products for you as well. The Enchantress is just the thing for you. It comes in hair oil and body lotion, just to name two. The scent profile features a blend of creamed peach, sparkling pear, lavender, and orange flowers. My wife loves this one, and I'm sure you will too. Now, head over to fablebeardcompany.co and use coupon code Sean15 for 15% off the entire order. That's right, 15% off the entire order for listeners of this show. Remember, that's Sean, S-H-A-W-N, and the number 15. Now let's get back to the show. As we just mentioned, the opening of Japan, quite understandably, rubbed the Japanese the wrong way. The shogun, who approved of the opening, was opposed by most of the daimyos. This led the shogun to appeal to the emperor himself, which marked a shift in political power. In the end, this was the beginning of the end for the shogunate and the start of Japan's move towards militarism. What did all of this mean for the people of Japan? Well, first, that feudalism was abolished. Instead of states run by daimyo, 
you would now have regional prefectures. Samurai were sent abroad to study how things were done in the West. Conscription was instituted to provide a new army. The country began to industrialize, and the state was reformed to reflect what the Japanese who now studied abroad had learned. Over the next 14 years, Japan was in turmoil. The samurais, some of whom were now armed with Western weapons, defeated the army of the shogun, and in 1868, imperial rule was restored. This is the Meiji Restoration, a time when the Japanese would prove, as noted by um, historian John W. Dower in his Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Embracing Defeat, Japan in the Wake of World War II, Japan proved to be a, quote, quick study, learning the modern arts of war as well as peace, and showing itself particularly adept at an understanding how to survive in an imperialist world, end quote. He goes on to point out a popular song in Japan in the 1880s had the following lines, quote, There's a law of nations, it is true, but when the moment comes, remember, the strong eat up the weak, end quote. Let's keep those, mind, or those lines, I should say, in mind as we go forward and try to understand the Japanese thinking. So now let's talk about some of the changes, specifically the political changes. A new constitution was created in 1889. It recognized the supremacy of the emperor. It called for a diet or a parliament with limited uh, powers given to the lower house, which was made up of elected representatives. Speaking of which, voting rights were determined by property qualifications. Only 5% of the population was able to cast a ballot, but it was a change from the shogun era. You even had political parties develop, although the country was dominated by the oligarchy up through the end of World War II. Presented to the people as an imperial gift, the Meiji Constitution did not guarantee basic human rights. Freedom of expression was limited, and unlike the American idea which says your rights come from the fact that you're a human being, and by the way, they are not given to you by the government, nor are they given to you by the Constitution, as some of my students used to say, and if your government teacher taught you that crap, then he or she should be fired. In Japan, they were granted by the government. Thus, they could be taken from you. And that is just what happened. Freedom of speech was affected by the Publication Law of 1893 and the Newspaper Law of 1909. Freedom of Assembly by the Assembly on Political Organization Law of 1890. Films and theatrical performances were censored by administrative rulings rather than via legislation. As historian Saburo Ayanaga notes, thought and expression were so hampered that, quote, only a small sphere of freedom remained, end quote. Now, in the end, the political system in the Meiji era was designed to essentially blindfold the populace. They were denied the basic facts of what was going on, as well as the ability to freely exchange opinions on the topic of the day. In other words, people had no way to truly have a hand in guiding the future of the nation. They were simply along for the ride. There was this fear that at any time a newspaper, a speech, or some other means of communication could be prohibited by arbitrary ruling. How can a healthy political consciousness be grown in this environment? I would argue it cannot. Well, we will talk more about this in a future episode. For now, suffice to say that this was a group which led Japan to destruction. What lay at the heart of this was a desire on the part not only of leadership, but of a majority of the Japanese people to see Japan become a great power through the acquisition of new territory. At first, they set their eyes on Korea. The Korean Peninsula had traditionally been dominated by China, but in the late 19th century, China was a mess, to put it mildly, as you're going to see in, I think it's episode 7 or so. 
the idea that Japan should take Korea became a national goal that was shared by government officials and the public at large. Then came the First Sino-Japanese War of 1894-5 and the Russo-Japanese War. Both saw Japan successfully defeat their opponent, and that removed China and Russian influence, um, or Chinese and Russian influence, from the peninsula. By 1910, Japanese domination was achieved, albeit with a bit of resistance on the part of the Korean people. Now, in the wake of the First Sino-Japanese War, nationalist passions soared in the land of the rising sun. Once viewed as a great center of classical culture and a powerful country, China was now seen by the Japanese as something else entirely. Naka Kansuki, an elementary student at the time of the war, notes the jingoistic mood that was rampant at the time. Quote, After the war started, my friends would talk of nothing else but the brave Japanese, the cowardly chinks. The teachers urged us on like a pack of puppies whelping after a Chinese bone. We repeated it at every chance. Brave Japanese, cowardly chinks, end quote. There were even pop songs at the time which fanned the flames of hatred. Just a few lines will be enough to convey the tone. Quote, Evil Chinamen drop like flies, swatted by our Murata rifles, and struck by our swords. Our troops advance everywhere. We brush the Chinese army aside and cross the Great Wall, end quote. And more, quote, As always, our troops are victorious, victorious. Chinks lose because they're afraid, end quote. That's about all that I can stomach, but I think you get the picture. Now, the war for Korea showed the modernization program embarked upon just two decades earlier was a success. The Imperial Japanese Army and Navy won a series of victories thanks to the use of superior tactics and training of their armed forces. Indeed, the war for control of Korea far exceeded the objective and escalated into a general advance into China. Further, it caused the Japanese or Japanese prestige to rise in the eyes of the rest of the world. It also gives us insight into what to expect from the Japanese in World War II. And by that I mean, we see the cruel treatment of defeated peoples already on display at this early date. As one author on the subject notes, quote, I discovered a vivid example of that cruelty among the papers of a military man assigned to Taiwan immediately after the island was ceded to Japan. It was a photograph of Japanese troops beheading two pigtailed Taiwanese rebels who apparently had been captured in a skirmish, end quote. This is how the Japanese dealt with those who opposed them. Social and economic domination was the name of the game in the new Japanese empire. Both Taiwanese and Koreans were treated as second-class citizens in their own countries. The contrast between how the elite Japanese rulers lived and how their imperial subjects lived was breathtaking. Large amounts of Korean land were simply confiscated during the land survey from 1910 through 1918. The result? Landless Koreans were now laborers, many of whom made their way to Japan and worked for meager wages, just hoping to somehow survive. There are many stories of the ill behavior of Japanese in their colonies, and it appears to have been universal, even if the Japanese in question considered themselves to be moderates. For example, Ozaki Hidetaro, a reporter for the Taiwan Nichi Nichi uh, Shimbun, I hope I didn't destroy that too much, was one such cultured moderate. However, his son recalls his father being uh, beating a Taiwanese wage laborer with a walking stick for arguing over the price of a ride in his rickshaw. As historian, again, we're talking about Saburo Eanaga notes, this was standard operating procedure in the Kwantung Concession in China, as well as other territory ruled by the Japanese. Okay, I don't want to turn this in, 
episode into a massive stroll down the rabbit hole of Meiji Japan, <laughs> at least not today. I think you get the idea. In the next installment, we will delve further down the historical memory hole and look at Japan and the militant nature of that society in the pre-war years. Until next time, I'm Sean, and you've been listening to Episode 2 of Season 4 of the American History Podcast. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Shut it off, Robert. Oh, please, we like it. Wait a minute.